Well, good morning, Abundant Life. How are you guys? It's good to see you here. How are you? How's my favorite service today? My favorite people. <laughs> you guys don't believe a word I'm saying, do you? <laughs> no, you don't, do you? I know you don't. That's okay. I don't care. I don't care. You are my favorite people. Hey, listen, before I get into the message today, I want to make sure you know about next week we're beginning a brand new series called Masterpiece. So actually, themes I've taught before, but I wanted to teach them again, and uh, it's put into a different series title called Masterpiece. It's about making your life a masterpiece. And so I encourage you to be here next week. It's going to be about a nine-week series. It's going to take us through the rest of the summer, right up to Labor Day, and or yeah, Labor Day. And uh, and so it's a great series to invite your friends, your families to come to, your enemies. If you have enemies, it would be a great one to have your enemies come and be a part. And they might learn something and start treating you differently. And so do that and invite somebody to come and be with us next week. Grab some of those little postcards, as many as you will take, and just give them to people. It's the easiest way on all the uh, earth to invite people to come. And so, so I encourage you to do that. Today we are finishing up the series that we started uh, just uh, three or four weeks ago called Amazed by Love, and it's the story of Ruth. I have grown to love this story. I think it's one of the most uh, beautiful stories in the Bible. On the surface, it looks like just a love story between a man and a woman, but beneath it all is the love story of God for his people. It's the love that God, our Heavenly Father, has for you and me and the links to which he went to redeem you and me and to bring us into his family. And so for one last time, let me recap the story and tell you, you know, how it goes. The story is set in one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, about a hundred year span of time, where it's just a very dark time. In the book of Judges that precedes the book of Ruth, the last line says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so it was a very difficult time, and it was about a 1,000 years before Jesus would come onto the scene. So when the story opens, it focuses in on a rather normal average family, a guy whose name is Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Well, it just so happens that they live in a town called Bethlehem. Ironically, Bethlehem is, means house of bread. But there's a famine in the land, and so Elimelech um, makes a decision to uproot his family and move them about 50 miles away on the other side of the Jordan to a place called Moab, a place where uh, God's people really should not have been because of a very perverse group of people. Well, no sooner do they get there that Elimelech dies, and we don't know why because the Bible doesn't say, but he dies, and then in a matter of time, um, Malon and Kilion, the two sons, they uh, marry Moabite women. One's named Ruth, and the other's named Orpah. And so uh, in about 10 years, Malon dies and, and Kilion dies. And so now the three women are left by themselves to fend for themselves. They have nothing, basically, and they're left all alone to just to care for themselves. Well, Naomi hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem, and so she makes a decision to go back to Bethlehem, to go back to the house of bread. And so Ruth and Orpah decide to go with her. On the way, she tries to discourage them from going because she realizes she has nothing to offer them. And she says, I encourage you to go back to your families, find husbands, have babies, and get on with your life. And so Orpah did just that. But Ruth made the decision, wherever you go, Naomi, that's what I'm going to do. That's where I'm going to go. 
Whoever your people are, they will be my people. And whoever your God is, that will be my God as well. So this is an incredible act of faith on Ruth's part. And it's also an incredible insight into her character and how loyal and how committed of a person she is. This is a turning moment. This is, this is one of those pivotal moments in her life that changed the course of history for her. All of us here have those moments in life. You can think back in time where you've made a decision that maybe at the time you didn't realize how big of a decision it was, and it became a life-changing mile-marker decision in your life. And so anyway, they make the 50-mile uh, track back to Bethlehem, and when they arrive, everybody's excited to see Naomi, and they say, sweet Naomi, you're back. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. And so now she's grumpy, and, and she's just mad at God. She's mad at the world, and, and life has been very difficult for her. Well, now they don't have any food. As days go by, they've got no food to eat. There's nothing in the cupboards. There's nothing in the pantry, and so Ruth makes a decision. I've got to go gleaning in the fields behind the harvesters because if we don't, we're going to die, and so she sought permission from Naomi to do that, and so she went to the fields to go glean. Now, gleaning would be similar to going out and hunting for aluminum cans today, or maybe going to a local soup kitchen or something like that. It was kind of the Hebrew welfare system. And so she's out, and she's gleaning, and the Bible in chapter 2 says that it just so happened that she, she went to the field belonging to Boaz. And I love that phrase because I think the author's playing on the wording there because he knows Nothing just happens. He knows that God orchestrates events, and he works in and through and around events and people and circumstances, good or bad, to weave together these beautiful tapestries that we sometimes can't see. So it just so happened that she wandered into the field of Boaz. Well, Boaz comes driving up in his dope ride, his Escalade, and, and, and he has his first Ruth sighting. He looks across the field and says, oh, my gosh, who in the world is that? And so he goes to HR department and says, who is that working over in the field? And they say, well, it's some girl from Moab. She came here. With Naomi, and she lost her husband. They didn't need food, so she asked if she could work in the field, and so there she is. And so he calls her over during lunchtime, has him sit, has her sit down beside him, maybe kind of tell her story a little bit. And he's so respectful. He's a gentleman. He's a person of integrity. He doesn't, you know, try to touch her. He doesn't, you know, say th something that's inappropriate. In fact, he's very protective of her. And he says, I want you to stay close to, to my team, stay close to my girls, and I've instructed my guys to leave you alone, not to tease you, not to bother you, not to harm you, not to do anything. Because remember, everybody did what was right in their own eyes in this time. So it was a very dangerous situation. And so he's very protective of her. Well, as the day goes on, uh, before she leaves, he loads her down with a whole lot of food, enough to last for like two weeks or something like that. And she gets back home, and Naomi sees this, and she says, oh, my goodness, who was it? And she starts playing 10,000 questions, and what was his name, and what did he ask you? Did he ask you out again, and does he want to marry you? And, you know, she's got all these questions and everything. And Well, right about then, the relationship goes silent. Uh, Ruth goes back to the field the next day. Boaz doesn't say a thing and goes back another day, doesn't say a thing. And in fact, probably four, five, six, seven weeks go by and there's no communication. And so she's left to wonder, what did I do? Did I have bad breath? You know, was I, you know, did I have B.O.? What was the problem? And, and it just came to, to an end. Well, Naomi thinks, I'm going to get involved in this story because I see something here and I'm going to get involved. And so she comes up with this crazy scheme of, of trying to connect the two together. 
And she literally told, told Ruth, she says, you need to fix yourself up, okay? Go, go get your hair cut, go, go tanning, go whiten your teeth, go get a pedicure, go get a manicure, dog yourself up, and then just get in front of him, okay? Just get in his way, just get in his way. You don't have to, you know, don't go overboard, don't be crazy, don't be needy, don't be desperate, but just get in his way, okay? Just get in his way. So go down there, there's a party going to be in town tonight, and just go, let him finish eating, let him finish drinking, let him kind of get in good spirits and all that stuff. And when he lays down, you slip under his cover. And say, so this is a crazy scheme. This is risky. And the whole kind of the purpose behind it is you're not going to ask him to propose, but you're going to propose that he propose. Okay, that's basically what she's doing. And so she slips underneath. He says, who is this? What are you doing down there? And, and she identified herself, and, and she asked if he would cover her with his, with his blanket which was, would be similar to, would you marry me? Would you put your ring on my finger? Would you be my provider? Would you be my protector? Would you be the one who will cover me? Well, he's taken back. It's like, oh my gosh, are you serious? Because I'm like so much older than you are. You're so much younger. He's probably in his mid-50s. She's probably in her late 20s. And, you know, what people would think of that. And, and, and we're from different towns. You know, I'm rich, you're poor. And, and honestly, Ruth, I think you're out of my league. I think you're out of my league. You could have chased after any of these other young guys around here, rich or poor, but you didn't. But if you're, if you're asking me to marry you, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Stay here until the night's over and, and leave before sunup so nobody sees you because we don't want people to think we did something we shouldn't have done because they didn't. And uh, so he was protecting, again, not her just physically, but he was protecting her reputation. Well, he knew that, as in any good love story, there is always an obstacle to overcome in order to get the woman. You know, you guys, you know that. When you started dating your girlfriend and your fiancé and, and the girl you wanted to marry, there were probably some obstacles that you had to overcome. You know, for us, there was a geographical distance. There was a health issue. And, uh, and for other people, sometimes there's another guy in the picture that you've got to get out of the way. Okay? And... Uh, and so this is Boaz's situation. There's another guy who is actually the redeemer in front of him to redeem Ruth or to, to redeem Naomi and ultimately Ruth. And Boaz knows this, and so he has to get him out of the picture. So how does he do that? How does he do that? Because it's like, oh, my gosh, she wants to marry me, and this guy's in between. If he sees her, he's going to want to marry her too and, and all that. So he's thinking about this. So, so the next day, he gets up, and, and the number one thing, the only thing on his things to do list that day is to get Mr. What's-His-Name out of the picture. And so he makes a beeline into town the next day, probably lands in the local Starbucks, and just kind of hangs out there and waiting for Mr. What's-His-Name to show up. And so we come into Chapter 4, and we're actually going to step right into a legal conversation that's taking place between these two guys, and it's all being worked around so that Boaz can win the girl, okay, and, and redeem Ruth. And so we're going to pick it up in, in uh, chapter 4, and it, it starts like this. Uh, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and he sat there. And I can picture, you know, Boaz comes driving up in his Escalade. He probably put on his tightest T-shirt that day, so his muscles were bulging out. He probably had something across the front that said, you know, don't make me open this kind of a thing. 
And, and so he pulls up and he gets out. He goes into, into Starbucks and, and he orders his mocha, extra hot 16 ounce, and, and, he, and he pulls some tables together, some chairs, and he just kind of waits there for Mr. What's-His-Name to show up because he knows he kind of hangs out there. So when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend. Come over here, my friend, and, and sit down right here. So he went over and he sat down. Now, again, the Bible doesn't mention the guy's name. We don't know the guy's name. It literally means in Hebrew, so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. So when I call him Mr. What's-His-Name or Mr. So-and-so, that's what the Hebrew word means, Mr. So-and-so. So he said, Mr. So-and-so, come here, Sarker, come here. I want you to sit down. There's something that, that I need to, to tell you. And so, so he, he comes over, and, and Boaz had, had already recruited about, about 10 of the leaders in town to come and be a witness to this whole transaction that's taking place. So, you, so he comes in the Starbucks, he pulls together two or three or four tables, gets all the chairs around. This guy walks in, he's got 10 of these leaders, plus boys, come here, bud, sit down, I gotta talk to you. And so the guy comes in and he sits down. And in verse two, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and he said, sit here. And so they did. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab and is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother, Elimelech, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these that are seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. So, so she's in town. She's got this property. My suggestion is you buy the property. And that's shrewd. Okay, he doesn't want him to buy the property because whoever gets the property gets the girl. And he does not want her, but he's shrewd. It's like Holy Spirit negotiating. Okay, it's what's going on here. And, and so he says, now, if you will redeem it, Go ahead and do so. But if you will not, just tell me so I, I will know. For no one has the right to it except for you, and I'm next in line. So he says, got this property. It's yours. Um, you have every right to it. If you want it, that's, that's awesome. That's cool. That's great. If you don't, then, you know, I'll, I'll take it. So this is what we need to know about Mr. So-and-so. He's a loser, okay? He's a slacker. Um, He's obligated to redeem Naomi. He's obligated to care for her. It's a, it's a relative. He has a moral obligation to do that. He actually has a, a legal obligation to do it as well, ethical obligation. But he doesn't. And it, it, it would be like, let's say, let's say you're living in Estacada, okay, small town. Everybody knows everybody. And, and he's there, and he has an aunt who has no job, has no food, has no money, has no means for income, and he's driving around in his pickup truck with his shotgun and pays no attention to her and totally leaves her alone. Okay, did I accurately describe Estacadians? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from a town like Estacada, so I, can, I, can, I know all about it. I, I used to have a pickup truck with a shotgun in the back. I am a redneck at heart, so I know all about these types. And so, and so he pays no attention. He pays zero attention to, to Naomi and her need. And so he's a loser. He's a loser. And he's a slacker, and, and he's irresponsible. He's probably a pretty selfish person all wrapped up in himself. In fact, in this story, there are three kinds of men. There's Elimelech, who's a businessman, who made a poor choice and uprooted his family, took him somewhere, place where they probably shouldn't have gone, and the, it cost the family dearly. And then there's uh, uh, Mr. What's-His-Name, uh, who takes no responsibility for anybody, who just cares about himself, just basically like a lot of men are, right? They're just irresponsible. How many of you ladies would agree? <laughs> <laughs> they're just sometimes going to just be <laughs> responsible. And, and then there's Mr. Boaz, who's a great businessman, 
But not only is he a great businessman, he's also a compassionate person who cares about the needs of other people. And, and I mean, we saw this early on. And so he presents this whole scenario to, to Mr. What's-His-Name about the property. It's yours. If you want it, it's yours. And so how's he going to respond? Well, what he says is, hey, I'll redeem it. I'll redeem it. Now, does this, does this shock Boaz? Not at all. Not at all. He knows he's going to say yes because who wouldn't want the property? Who, who wouldn't want, really, I'm in real estate. Yes, I want to build my business. I'm into expanding my empire. Absolutely, I want the property. He says, well, let me, t- let me make sure you f- fully understand everything that, that's going on here. So in verse 5, then Boaz says, now, now, just so you know, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And so what Boaz does, he's got these guys around, he's sitting there talking to him, saying, now, just want to be sure you understand that when you do get the property, you get the dead man's widow. And her name is Naomi. Well, what's, what's Naomi like? What's she like? Well, she's, she's old, and, and she's, uh, she's grumpy. Um, she used to be a pretty sweet person, but she's actually kind of bitter. She's kind of mad at God, kind of mad at the world. And in fact, she even changed her name to Mara. Mara, what's that mean? Well, it means bitter. Oh, oh okay. I'm sure she'll get over it. I mean, it's been a rough life. I'm sure she'll get over it one of these days. And, uh, and so you get her. You get her. And, and then you also get uh, uh, Ruth. And well, who's Ruth? Well, you remember Naomi had two sons, and they both married Moabite women. Well, both the sons died, and one stayed back, and Ruth is the one who came. And, and so she's from Moab. From Moab. Why, why would anybody marry anybody from Moab? It beats me. I kind of thought the same thing myself. You know, she's, she, I don't know, Moab, those people are just, you know, they're kind of a little bit weird. They're kind of freakish, you know. They're sexually perverted people. She's probably slept around quite a bit. Who knows? I don't, but anyway, you get her too, just so you know that, 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 do, that you get her as well. And which, by the way, she's, she's relatively young, probably in her mid to late 20s, and she hasn't had any kids yet. By the way, have you ever had kids? Yeah, I've had kids. I've raised them. They're gone, and I'm free, and I can live my life. Okay, well, you know, she's probably going to want kids because she's relatively young, and you could do it all over again. You could do it all over again. And so, he, you know, he's really shrewd. He's just painting this picture, you know, to, to what's his name. And, and so, so now, you know, his response to, to the whole thing is, uh, well, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that, that, I, that I, I want this. At this in verse 6, it says, then, then I, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't redeem this because I might endanger my own estate. In other words, this is going to cramp my style, okay? I do not want some old woman and some, some needy girl from Moab, you know, in, in my family. I mean, if you were buying, it would be like if you were buying a house, and, and the fine print said, now, along with the house, up the stairs on the left is an old woman. And you, you get her, and then across the hall is some, some um, crazy young chick from Las Vegas. You, you get both of them, okay? You, you get both of them. They come with the property. Oh, okay, well, the house looked good from the outside, but I'm not so sure about it anymore. And so he says, I can't do this. So he, he turns to the boat and says, I'll tell you what, you redeem it. <laughs> you redeem it. I can't do it. And so I'm sure on the inside, Boaz is going, yes, yes, yes. And his plan is working. It's just working like a charm. And, 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 so, and so in verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and he gave it to the other. 
That's the way they do it. That's, I mean, it'd be like, I took off my shoe, here's my shoe, and this solidifies the deal that we're making. So this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. And so in verse 8, the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, <laughs> buy it yourself. <laughs> Just buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And so then in verse 9, then, then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people in Starbucks, hey, everybody, hey, let me have your attention. I got a big announcement to make today. You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all of the property that belonged to Elimelech and to Malon and to Kilion. It's all, it's all mine now. And I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are my witnesses. Mocha's for everybody in Starbucks. And so he, he buys all the, all, everybody a drink, a cup of coffee. And, and then verse 11, the elders all say, here, here. You know, and, and they say, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. The property's yours. Naomi's yours. Ruth is yours. It's all yours. And so in verse 13, uh, so Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. So they went and got married. They, I mean, he, right away, he takes her and goes and has the wedding. He's not going to let her get away. And then it says he went to her, and that mean, means they had sex. And then the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Isn't that great? Now, bear in mind that she had been married probably about 10 years or so, had never had children. And, and so they pray that, in, that uh, God will bless them and that they'll be famous in Israel and that they'll have children. And so they hadn't ha she hadn't had children. So they're basically praying that God would open her womb and allow her to have children, which would be great for her, and that they would be, be famous. And, and that's, that we see that in that verse. Now, he's, and then they go on and say, for your daughter-in-law, Oh, and so the story switches now. It, the scene changes from, from Boaz and Starbucks and Mr. What's his name and the elders. Now it switches over to, to Naomi. The story goes to Naomi, and she's with her girlfriends, and, and they're probably in a life group or, or something like that, and, and, uh, and, and they're, all, they're all together, and, uh, and they say, you know, God has blessed you so, so much, Naomi. You're blessed now. No longer are you mara. No longer are you bitter, but now you can be grateful and, and pleasant and sweet. It says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better than seven sons. In other words, you, you know, you got a daughter, you got an amazing daughter-in-law from Moab. And seven is the number of perfection. And so she's saying, you know, this daughter-in-law that you've got, that's better than seven sons. You know, I'm not sure how that could be. But anyway, so, and, and has given him birth and has given birth. And so they pray uh, for for. Uh, the, God's blessing upon them. And you see just the whole story of redemption. Everything about it is redemption. Everything about it. When you look at uh, Ruth, for example, she went from being a, um, an idol worshiper to a worshiper of God. She went from being a desperate, um, needy girl to becoming um, a happily married woman. She went from having no children to having children. Everything about it is a story of redemption. And if you look at Naomi, she went from being bitter and ma angry and mad at God and mad at the world to where now she's grateful, she's excited, has a whole new le lease on life. And, and it's, the whole thing is just a story of redemption. Well, then Naomi, in verse 16, took the child and she laid him in her lap and she cared for him. So the, the, that's kind of the last scene of, of the story. And so she's got this little baby, and, and, you know, she's cuddling it and playing with his hair and wiping snot from its nose and drool from its mouth and probably blowing, 
you know, raspberries on his stomach and, and all of that, and just playing with the thing. And that's, that's the way the story, that's the way the story ends. So it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then the, the women living there, they said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Obed, which means a worshiper or a servant of God. And so now Ruth has this beautiful little baby boy. Naomi has a grandson, Obed, worshiper, servant of God. Now, this is what we have to understand about this. Obed, being this worshiper of God and a servant of God, he became the father of Jesse. And then Jesse became the father of David. Anybody here ever hear of David? Yeah, King David. And then on down through time, who would enter into the world through the line of David? It's Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the only one who could redeem us. It's an amazing story how, how God worked in this whole situation. I mean, it was as bleak as it could get. It started out with a famine and three funerals. That's how it started out. And, and then it went to a story of redemption, marriage, having a baby, the Son of God enters the world. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Isn't God creative? And for us to never think or to realize that God isn't working in the lives of people and circumstances and events. Now, every one of us in this room is somewhere in this book. Some of you are in chapter 1. Some of you right now are in chapter 1. And it is a season of unimaginable pain and suffering. Some of you are going through unimaginable pain and suffering right now. You've lost a loved one unexpectedly. You're going through some kind of a physical issue you just received news of. And, or you've lost something that's very important to you. And, and, and inside, you feel like you're dried up on the inside. It's a desert. You feel like a desert. And it's unimaginable pain, unimaginable suffering in your life. What do you do? What do you do? Do you stay in Moab? Or do you return to the house of bread? Do you stay in Moab or do you return to, to Jesus, the bread of life? That's what they did. In the midst of their suffering, they returned back to Jesus. That's what I encourage you to do. Return back to Jesus because he's your only hope. He's your only hope. That's where some of you are. Some of you are in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That, it's actually, it's where my wife and I are right now. As I was putting this together and thinking about this, this is exactly where my wife and I are right now. In chapter 2 and 3, you're, you're venturing out and you're taking new steps of faith. You're venturing out and you're taking new steps of faith. And you're trusting that God is going to guide you. You're trusting that God's going to lead you. And you're trusting that God's going to provide for you. That's where you are. Some of you right now, you're at a season of your life where you're, you're thinking, God, if you don't come through, then I'm sunk. I'm in deep weeds. You better come through. Not only is it where my wife Ann and I are right now, it's, it's really where this church is right now because we're in a transition season, as, as probably all of you know right now. We're in a transition season, and as a church, we're venturing out. And this calls for steps of faith. It calls for steps of trusting and calls for God to provide where we maybe don't see where he's going to provide. And it can be both an exciting place to be and it can be a scary place to be. How many of you would agree with me? I mean, there are times you wake up and it's like, man, I'm so excited about this future. And on the other hand, it's like, I'm scared to death. And that's chapter 2 and that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, some of you are in chapter 4 and you're living in the joy and the happiness of a life of following God. 
you've been following God and, and you've been through times of famine, you've been through times of, of plenty and, and you've taken steps of faith and you've seen God work and now you're kind of on the other end of life and you've seen all that and you're just living in the joy of knowing that God's in charge. You're living in, in the joy of knowing that God's in control and that he takes the good and the bad, the ups and the downs and he weaves it all together into a beautiful, beautiful picture. And some of you are right there right now. Now, there's a lot of lessons that come out of this story, but let me give you three that as we wrap it up. Here's the first one. God is at work. Everybody say at work. God is at work. God is at work in this world to bring about his redemptive purposes. God is always at work in this world. There's never been a day where God has not been at work in this world to bring about his redemptive purposes. That's what he does. He's always moving. And, and he's working. When, when we see events happening on a global scale and, and stuff that's way beyond our control and stuff that worry us to death and scare us to death, to death, just know behind it all, God's working to bring everything, to move everything toward his redemptive purposes. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. That's why this story is simply pointing us to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Everything that happens, God's working to move it toward his redemptive purpose. Here's number two. God is at work through ordinary people. Everybody say ordinary people. God is at work through ordinary people just like you and just like me. He doesn't just work through nations. He doesn't just work through kings or presidents or queens. He doesn't just work through professional athletes. Okay, he works through ordinary people just like you and just like me, just like Ruth, just like Elimelech, just like Naomi. They were ordinary people through whom he decided to bring Jesus into the world. Who knows what he's got up his sleeve for you? But I do know this. God's working through ordinary people for the same reason, for his ultimate glory and for your good. Through the good, through the bad, through the ups, through the downs ultimately for his glory, for your good. Here's number three. God wants to and is able to redeem you. He wants to redeem you. Not only does he want to redeem you, he's able to redeem you. You see, in this story, Mr. What's-His-Name was obligated to redeem Naomi, but he didn't do it. Boaz had zero obligation to Naomi. Or to Ruth. Zero obligation. He did not redeem them because they were obligated. There's only one reason why he redeemed them. He loved her. He loved her. Sure, she came from the wrong side of the tracks. Sure, she came from Moab. Sure, she worshipped idols. Sure, she worshipped false gods. Sure, she probably had, had a pretty interesting background. But he saw in her lots of qualities that caused him to say, I love you. I'm going to redeem you. Now, here's a little bit of switch in, in, in terms of that, that in analogy. You don't have to measure up in order for God to love you. You don't have to measure up in order for God to redeem you. Naomi told Ruth, go fix yourself up. Go tan and go you know, brush your teeth, get your teeth white and comb your hair, lose some weight, pluck your eyebrows, do all that stuff. In order, in order for him to notice you, in order for him to love you, you don't have to do any of that stuff. You don't have to be pre-washed in order to come to God. He accepts you just as you are. There's so much about this story that's about Ruth and, and, and Boaz. It's between Jesus and us and all this. And, 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 and God loves you just the way you are. Some people think there's no way God could possibly redeem me. Not where I've come from and not what I've done. 
And this is where you and I have to understand in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when you get your act together, then I'll think about redeeming you. He redeems you, period. Why? Not because he's obligated, but because he loves you. This, this story is amazing because Boaz was not only willing to redeem Ruth, he was able to redeem Ruth. He was a businessman, he had means, he had character, he had everything he needed to have in order to redeem her. In this story, Jesus is the only one who is able to redeem you. So he's willing, and that's good, but he's also able to redeem you. Why? Because he's the perfect, sinless son of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I want you to read this with me today. This is your memory verse for this week, and this speaks to what I'm talking about. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 21 together. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he's able to redeem us because God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through Jesus. He's able to save us completely. So he's willing and he's able. The question is, are you going to come to him or not? You see, you and I are Ruth in the story. We come from nowhere, we have nothing, we're destitute, and we're doomed unless Boaz shows up. That's who we are. And so we humbly come to Jesus. We bow at his feet and we say, Jesus, will you cover me? Will you redeem me? Will you save me? That's who we are. That's who we are. And Jesus looks back at you and he says, yes, I will. Not because I have to, but because I want to. I love you. That's why. And that's what Jesus does for us. And so all we can do is what Ephesians says. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It took a lot of faith. It took a lot of guts for Ruth to go to the threshing floor that night and say, Boaz, would you cover me? Would you, would you do that for me? And, and Ephesians says, this, this is not from yourself. It's, it's the gift of God. It's a gift of God that he wants to save us. And so the question is, are we willing to humble ourselves, come to Jesus, and just say, Jesus, I need you because without you, I'm lost. I'm lost. So I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head today and that we would take just a moment and recognize that, that, that God is so incredibly good to us and that we should simply be amazed, amazed by his love. Father, we, we come to you today and we recognize that we are just like Ruth. We, we come from a bad place, maybe not geographically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually. We, we're lost. We're lost. We're destitute. We're poor. We've got nothing to offer you. We're doomed without you. And so all we can do is come to you in, in faith and, and ask you to cover us, to, to forgive us, to save us, to provide for us. And so we recognize that's who we are. And Jesus, we recognize that you're Boaz and you, you have no obligation. But because you love us incredibly in ways that we can't even imagine, 
you say yes, and you marry us. You marry us, and we become your bride. We come into your family, and we're born again. And we become a part of the family of Jesus. We thank you for your amazing love. Lord, if there's someone here today, would you speak to the heart to, to turn to you? Maybe turn back to you or to turn to you for the first time. And so if that's you today, I want to invite you, if you would, just to pray with me this prayer. Father in heaven, I'm amazed at your love. It's, it's, it's beyond reason. You didn't have to love me, but you chose to. And so I humble myself before you and I ask you to redeem me. And I will stay amazed at your love. I pray this in your name. Amen.